Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It is fantastic to see all of you this morning. Thank you for joining Strength to Strength. It's a little frosty here. It's about six below. It says it feels like 22 below. And for you Canadians, or we Canadians, I guess it's minus 21. feels like minus 30. Um, so I'm glad I don't work outside today. This morning, we're going to hear from Brother Glenn Martin. He's from Granby, Massachusetts, where he lives with his wife and two children. And he fellowships with a small group called Disciples Fellowship. Now, I have the privilege of working with Glenn um, with Strength to Strength here. And I have to say, uh, he pulls more weight than the other three of us on the team, I would say. I think that's fair, Bryant. Um, it's thanks to him that we yes, have a website. Sure. Um, he's the one posting all the information every week. He's uploading the videos. We can thank him for the quality of the videos, the quality of the recordings, um, or the quality of the sounds. Uh, he just, I, I'm not even sure what all he does, but I know that there's a lot of things happen behind the scenes and that's Glenn. Thanks to him for that. Um, so we're, I'm excited to hear what he has to say this morning. Uh, before we get into it, let's have a word of prayer. Righteous Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that your mercy is new again this morning. We pray, Lord, that you're, you would touch the lips of Brother Glenn as he shares with us this morning. Give him clarity of thought. Calm his um, mind and that we could hear a word from you. May your Holy Spirit move in our meeting this morning. Be with each one that is participating. May your presence be felt. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. It's all yours, Glenn. Welcome to Strength to Strength. I'm grateful to be here this morning. One of my longtime interests in the scripture is the Old Testament record. And that's what I'd like to look at this morning. Uh, it was actually Paul uh, wrote to the Romans and uh, this is what he uh, what he said. Let me just uh, pull something up here. One second. Yeah. So um, Paul said to the Romans, "For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope." And when Paul said that the Scriptures that he was referring to was the Old Testament, so Paul tells us in First Corinthians ten that Israel's history is provided in scripture for our spiritual instruction. And it's not given just for historical purposes or academic purposes, but rather so that we as the New Testament saints can grow in obedience to, to the Lord. So I'd like to read what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And um, he said, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through all passed through the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So according to Paul, the Old Testament scripture, uh, far from being an outdated uh, book of literature, should be part of our study for the purpose of our spiritual benefit. So the story that I'm going to share this morning is the same one that Paul was referring to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's the story of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. So I'm going to um, tell you the story, but instead of me providing all the 
the lessons and then the interpretation, I'm going to uh, tell the story and then open it up for a discussion so that we can together learn uh, spiritual lessons from this. So just um, a few uh, snippets to set the context and a few uh, stories that precede this. We know how the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for many years, and uh, they left one night in what is called the Exodus. The Lord led them with the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They crossed the Red Sea. They traveled to Mount Sinai, and there they camped while God delivered the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai to, to Moses. So again, I'm just uh, touching on a few high points here. There's all these things. There's a lot of um, stories that could be explored further. Early on in the travels, uh, the, the people set to grumbling. Um, some of it came from the mixed multitude, but it spread like a, like a cancer through the, the camp. And one of their initial complaints was their food. And um, God didn't push back. Instead, he provided uh, manna for them. Um, Moses was there, was alone as uh, God's representative. And he was... Uh, pretty overwhelmed in his role because all the discontent and the grumbling of the multitude, it all had one, one target, and that target was uh, Moses as their leader. So that was the case now. The people were tired of the manna, and they were remembering the food in Egypt. And I'm going to be reading from the, the book of Numbers. I'm reading from the Septuagint. And in chapter 11 is where I'm going to pick up. And uh, this is what they said. We remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried up and there's nothing before our eyes except this manna. So Moses was um, weary of this and uh, there was nothing he could do. Uh, he had not chosen to be the leader. He was not elected by the people. Um, and instead, his, his leadership um, was entirely God appointed. So he, he didn't have the option to resign. And he felt trapped between, between God and also uh, the people. So he brought his uh, complaint before the Lord. And this is also in Numbers chapter 11. And I'm going to read what he said here to the Lord. Beginning in verse 10. Then Moses heard the weeping throughout their tribes, everyone at his door. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, and we're going to skip down to verse 13, where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep over all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear this people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. So um, God responded then by having uh, Moses appoint elders. Uh, he appointed 70 elders to help share the load. And then God shared uh, it actually says that God shared Moses' spirit from God with these other 70 as well. And uh, it was actually in this uh, occasion where two of these elders were, were prophesying, and somebody came to Moses and reported this as a, as a problem. And Moses responded with those uh, famous words. He said, would that all the Lord's people might be prophets. Well, the grumbling didn't end, and uh, they said, who's going to give us meat? So the Lord responded by providing quail for them. And uh, many of the people, they greedily gobbled down the quail, um, apparently without gratitude. And the Lord struck the ungrateful with the, with the plague. Then um, shortly following that, Aaron and Miriam, who were Moses' brother and sister, began speaking against Moses. So it's coming very, very close, uh, right within the, the family and the top leadership there. Then the Lord um, defended Moses and uh, Miriam. If you know the story, she became a leper. And uh, Moses, rather than responding like, yes, great, uh, he rather begged the Lord for compassion and uh, begged for her, for her healing. And so the Lord um, granted that healing. The, the whole camp, the three million people there, were delayed for seven days during her period of cleansing. But through all these stories, uh, there's... The continual progress that's being made on their journey. And uh, they're now at the southern end of the land of Canaan in a town called Kadesh Barnea. And uh, that brings us to Numbers chapter 13. And that's where we're going to begin reading. So in Numbers chapter 13, 
uh, verse one, it says, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to all the children of Israel. So now before we continue, I'd like to show you where they were. They were in an area called Kadesh Barnea. Sometimes this area is just called Kadesh. And it's at the southern tip of the of, of Israel. So um, on the map here, you can see uh, where they left in Egypt. They left up here at Ramses. Um, give me one second. I just want to uh, illustrate this on the on the map. So they started here in in Egypt in Ramses, and they traveled um, south, traveled south until they came to the Red Sea. A little bit of a question of where they crossed the Red Sea, but it doesn't matter. Uh, after they were across the Red Sea, they continued traveling south, and uh, they came down to to Mount Sinai, and that's the lowermost uh, tip here. And then from there, um, they were there for a time. That's where, of course, we know the story of um, the golden calf and so on. Then they traveled north from there. And um, all the while they're traveling here is when these stories were happening that, that I was just uh, talking about. And they traveled north, traveled north. And the last thing that happened is the story that I gave you there about Miriam getting leprosy was right up here about uh, near the top uh, where, where I stopped drawing there. And uh, you'll notice here that um, there's a town called Kadesh Barnea. So that is where they um, ended their, um, or that, that's where the story picks up about the about the 12 spies at Kadesh Barnea. Now, I think that's um, very interesting when we uh, connect that with some other um, map that I want to show you here. And that is this. You will notice on this map um, at the bottom tip, we have a town called Kadesh. So this is um, the tribes that are shown on this map. And you will notice that because they were at Kadesh, they were actually, they, they had like arrived. They were, they were there. They were actually stepping foot into the edge of what was later to become uh, Judah's tribe. So it's not like they were a long ways off. Hey, let's go send spies out ahead. A thousand miles from here, we'll come to this area. It's like they, they already were, were there on, on the edges of, of the land. Okay, so um, we're going to um, go back to the storyline here and uh, pick that up in Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to read the text. There's um, a little bit of length to this, but um, it's very accessible and approachable um, reading. So uh, I think we'll just um, look at that here. Uh, all right, so the text begins in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a ruler among them. So Moses sent them from the desert of Paran at the Lord's voice, and all the men were rulers of the children of Israel. Now these were their names, from the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zachar, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Eagle, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. And we're going to skip some of these verses. Verse 16. Now these are the names of the men Moses sent to spy out the land. Now Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said to them, go up to this desert and go up to this mountain, and you will see the land, the people who dwell upon it. What are they? Are they strong or weak, few or many? Also, what is the land they dwell in? Is it good or bad? Then too, what about the cities they inhabit? Are they walled or unwalled? Then again, what about the ground? Is it fertile or neglected? Are there trees on it? Persevere and you shall receive some of the fruits of the land. Now the days were the days of spring, the forerunner of the grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath. Then they went up through the desert and came to Hebron. And uh, let's get down to verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshcol and surveyed it and cut down a branch. And with one cluster of grapes, they carried it between two of them on a pole. 
They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster the sons of Israel cut down there. Okay, verse uh, 25. Then they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel in the desert of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to the congregation, losing my place here, and showed them the fruit of the land. Verse uh, 27. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you send us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is, this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land toward the south. The Hittites, the Evites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people toward Moses and said to him, No, but let us go up at once and take possession of it, for we are well able to overcome them. Verse uh, 31, but the men who went up with him said, we are not going up for we are unable to go up against them because they are stronger than we. So they instilled a terror for the land, which they spied out among the children of Israel, saying the land through which we went as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants and we seemed like grasshoppers to them, but so we actually were. Now, chapter 14, verse 1, Then all the, now all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the children of Israel were murmuring against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would we had died in the land of Egypt or in this desert? Why did the Lord bring us to this land to fall in war? Our wives and children shall be plundered. It is better for us to return to Egypt. So they said to one another, Let us select a ruler and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an extremely good land. Since the Lord chooses us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord nor fear nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So then following that, a uh, few other things happened. Uh, the Lord threatened to destroy the whole assembly and raise up a new and greater nation from, from Moses. Then um, you know the story, Moses uh, intercedes for the people. He could have done just the opposite and said, yeah, I'd love to take the place of uh, Abraham and have this be the children of Moses, but he didn't do that. And then uh, the Lord relented from destroying the nation, and he said he will offer entry only to Joshua and Caleb. And then the 10 spies who had given the, the bad report, they were destroyed immediately, unlike all the others who had grumbled and complained, lived out the remaining part of 40 years until they had died, but the 10 uh, were destroyed. And then some of them attempted it on their own and were destroyed. So um, on that part about the a few of them attempting it on their own, I'd like to um, illustrate that here on the map as well, just to uh, show you where they, where they went. Uh, one second here. Okay, so uh, the map that we had up earlier, I'm going to just uh, put that on the screen here again. And uh, you will notice how they had left from um, Egypt. I had uh, shown you that part of it. And they had come down around here, past Sinai, up through here. And now when they had come to Kadesh Barnea, that's where the 10 spies were sent out from. But then what happened is um, some of them decided they're going to to travel on their own because the Lord had said they can't go. And they said, well, we're not going to stay here in the wilderness. So some of them went up here 
and uh, they encountered a battle about right here, and they were driven right back to where they had come from. And then it was following that that they simply wandered around in the wilderness for, for 40 years. Uh, exactly the path there is a little bit unknown, but they traveled around for 40 years, not really accomplishing much um, progress. No, not having any progress, really. Yeah, so um, that's, um, that's the story there. Um, just like to look at one other question that has often puzzled me, and that is, what was the purpose uh, for the spies going in the first place? Like, I wondered, you know, if God wanted them to inherit the promised land, why did God send spies ahead? Like, was this uh, God's idea to have them assess what the challenges are that are going to be coming? Or didn't he know what was there? Was this some, some kind of a test of faith? I think the answer is simple, that this never needed to happen in the first place. There was no need for the spies to go at all. Uh, for the spies to travel into Canaan, that was uh, man's idea and not God's idea. And uh, that can be illustrated pretty simply. So we had started reading in Numbers 13, verse 1, where it says that the Lord said to Moses, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the children of Israel. But that's not the whole story. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, there Moses is retelling the story uh, from Numbers. Uh, Deuteronomy, almost the entire book, is simply um, Moses talking. And um, in chapter 1, he tells the story and tells them, or tells his audience, whoever reads this, that God had told Moses that they have arrived, the land is yours, and go take it. And uh, that is actually in chapter 1. Uh, verse 5, where um, it says this, Behold, the Jordan in the land of Moab, I'm sorry, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountain of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in Arabah, in the mountains and in the plain, to the south and to the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Behold, I am delivering the land in your presence. Go in and inherit the land I swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give it to them and their seed after them. So that's uh, what the Lord said to them. He said, hey, look, uh, go in. Go in and inherit it. Verse 8. Uh, this is uh, the land. And then we drop down a few verses to verse 20. And then this is what Moses told the people. He said, then I said to them, you have come to the mountains of the Amorite, which the Lord our God is giving us. Behold, the Lord your God is delivering the land to you in your presence. Go up and take it as an inheritance in the manner the Lord God of your fathers spoke to you. Do not fear or be afraid. And then what was their response? Then every one of them came near me and said, let us send men before us and let them spy out the land for us. Report back to us the way we should go up in it and the cities in which we should come. So that uh, illustrates a little piece that's not mentioned in the book of uh, Numbers. That is that it was the people's idea. And God uh, evidently then said to Moses, okay, go and, uh, go and spy out the land. Appoint somebody from every tribe. But it's a, a piece of the story that, that didn't need to happen. Uh, Moses didn't uh, apparently didn't resist the call for spies. Maybe he was thought, you know, what's the harm? Uh, like we're already here. Like they're going to like it. I don't know, but it appears like he didn't um, resist that. But it didn't turn out well at all. Okay, so we looked at the story, and uh, I'd like to open it up now for some applications. And uh, I compiled a few questions, maybe just to get started, and. Uh, then we can take it from there. Um, so the first uh, questions I have, uh, question one and two, kind of go together. Uh, the first question is, what does the fact that sending the spies was man's idea, not God's, tell us about the outcome? And then um, question two, when we believe we're being called by God to walk into the unknown, what place, if any, does forethought, planning, and risk assessment enter in? So um, be interested in your thoughts on those questions. Um, 
I don't know if there's a right or wrong exactly. So yeah, uh, what does anybody have to share here? So again, uh, the questions are, the first one is, because of how this uh, happened, that the, the people had called for the spies, uh, that was man's idea, not God's, uh, does that um, have some bearing on, on the outcome? And then if we bring that more personally, which is uh, question two, uh, what should we do when we believe that we are being called by God into the unknown? Um, are we supposed to, you know, like uh, send out spies? You know what I mean? Like, are we supposed to have um, planning and risk assessment and so on like, like they did? Or is that going to um, be counterproductive from us being able to inherit the land? There's two things I think about in that first question. Um, what, what, I wonder how different their story would have gone if they would have just entered Canaan there. Like you think about their journey then in the wilderness for 40 years and then their entrance at Jericho, which was, you know, a tremendous victory for them. But it makes you wonder if they would have come up from the bottom, maybe it was a, a totally different approach that God had in mind for them to overtake the land. And another thing I thought of was how much sense that makes, how much common sense that makes. Well, it's it's being safe. It's being uh, reasonable. Um, so in men's eyes, that seems like a pretty smart thing to do um, with our human logic. But then you see the journey that they took because they didn't listen. Um, just a couple thoughts there. Yeah, I appreciate that. So that that works very well when we're talking about them. <laughs> but uh, what about if we bring this um, closer, more personally? If um, if we believe that God is calling us maybe to to some a great, uh, very uh, uh, consequential uh, decision or, or move, um, how how does that apply to us? Should we have any risk assessment in our in our lives? Well, I'm not sure if um, if risk assessment is really what went wrong for them, um, or if it was their lack of faith. Um, they they when they suggested sending spies, they said, "Let's go see." what things are like and what's the best approach here. And when the spies came back, they say, we're just not going to make it. And um, so somewhere in the, in the middle there, their fear overtook them and they um, got their eyes off of God's possibility of seeing them through. And all they could see was what they could do in their own strength. That's Truman Evie. Yeah, I believe that's um, true and um, very, very unfortunate, very, very sad. Leonard, you mean? No. Oh. Any, any further thoughts? This is uh, free association. Uh, <clears throat> the, the thing that came to my mind almost immediately was uh, when the... Uh, when. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent forth, I think, from Antioch. There were, I think, five prophets and teachers, I think it says in the book of Acts. And they were ministering to the Lord with fasting and prayer. And the Lord said, uh, select out for me Saul and Barnabas for the purpose for which I have uh, chosen them. So they did that, and then <clears throat> before they sent them out, after having after ha them having received their assignment, they fasted and prayed again. So maybe that's the department of risk assessment and reconnaissance and anything else you want to uh, think about in terms of uh, human. Uh, Prudence. Uh, that's all I have to say. 
Sometimes, uh, yeah, I appreciate that, Dan. Um, sometimes, Glenn, just thinking about this, is we sense a call from God, uh, but when exactly does that call need to be acted upon? Uh, that's always a question, and I believe that's why God has given us the community of believers around us to, to engage with that. And, yeah, too many times we can you know, let circumstances affect these decisions. Um, but sometimes there's there's a waiting that needs to happen. And, I, you know, I'm just thinking strictly of a question. I mean, I mean, not so much in the context of, of the children of Israel here. Um, think of Patrick, you know, going up to Ireland um, and him having to wait. You know, sometimes there's that preparation. Well, you Moses, you know, he spent 40 years in the wilderness. You have Paul, you, you know, he spent years before his ministry. Uh, there's just sometimes there's time that needs to needs to uh, pass before a person is equipped fully. Um, Abraham Lincoln said, "You know, give me a tree in three three hours to cut it down. I'll spend the first two hours sharpening my axe." You know, some of those things. Yeah, preparation um, is so big, and in, in, in especially in in activities maybe that are yeah that are that are, uh, take. Um, that are large. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if that really applies here exactly, but I'm just kind of just, just talking, you know, thinking out loud. So. Yeah. Thank you for that. Anyone else have any thoughts on that question? So I don't have um, an answer, but an observation. So, it does. Uh, you you pointed out that it seems like the the idea of spying out the land wasn't God's idea, but the people's idea. And and I've noticed that 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 actually happens a lot in Scripture, where God has an idea, or God has a plan and a way, and the people go and <clears throat> and they they change. They they don't like God's way, or they they think of something better, and they 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 do it their own way, and. God actually blesses that sometimes. I'm, I'm amazed at the way you see that happening in Scripture. In some ways, God blesses that and, and uses that. And and I'm just it's incredible how flexible God can be with with us who think we know better than He does. So I guess I'm not sure that everything can be traced back to the idea of sending in the spies up to the land. You know, like, like that maybe wasn't the well, maybe it was a point where they they they. Um, diverged from God's original plan. God could have still used that if they had been men of faith as they went and, and looking at God instead of at the giants in the land. So that's just an observation. So I think what you're saying is that perhaps they could have gone in and spied out the land. If they had been people of faith, then they would have come back and we would have had 12 spies that would have given a good report Right? Is that kind of the, right. the thought? Sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. I have another thought that is quite chastening. Uh, we're told that that uh, these accounts uh, are there for our admonition. Uh, that's one scripture. Another scripture that is pertinent is. Uh, Many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, broad is the way uh, to destruction, but the, the, the path, narrow is the path to uh, salvation. And so what was the, the uh, proportion of people who actually entered into the promised land compared to the uh, total number of people who might have entered? Uh, there was only two. That's scary. It's chastening. If that's an example for us, should should I be walking way more circumspectly than I do? Yeah, I appreciate that. So, um, 
there's actually a question that I have on, on that subject as well. And I'm just going to put that one up here. This is uh, skipping ahead, but uh, because it relates to, to what you just uh, mentioned there. So there's a, a huge disproportionality. We've got 10 of the 12 spies plus nearly all of Israel's population. They were all on the wrong side. Uh, I think the obvious conclusion is that we should not trust the majority. There's no safety in numbers. But what lessons can we learn for our fellowships where we honor cooperation with the brotherhood and sometimes we question or challenge people who are standing uh, aside or alone? Um, any, any thoughts on that? This I had a, noticed the um, the the few that um, that didn't believe. Well, the few in regards to the amount of people that swayed the whole mass into you know unbelief. Um, that seems like a very cautionary tale in my mind. That you know, there's I guess the ten of them was the largest majority of the people that went into the land of Canaan. But in regards to the whole nation, you'd think there would have been some that would have stood up and said, well, maybe we should consult God on this. Maybe we should talk to Moses about this. Maybe we should, you know, the list could go on and on of things that they could have done to to check the story and check their unbelief, you know, but it, it swept through all of them. So that influence um, is a bit of a warning, I guess. Yeah, that's that's good, Sam. Um that would be a good observation to make um, for those of us, you know, if we're actually, your question there gets really practical, Glenn, and uh, scarily practical, maybe, um, you know, how do we, the, the, the one or two that are standing alone, you know, whether you are that person or whether you are part of the majority and looking at that person, how do you respond to that person? And I think of, you know, Ephesians 4, 13, um, I'm sorry, 11 talks about there's some that are, God gives, you know, he gives some to be prophets, some, some prophets, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's that prophetical person who's standing alone. And I think that we really need to be, um, especially if we're of the majority, we need to relate to that person with much love and, and, and a listening ear and in light of scripture, because yeah, it is, it, um, God does call these people to stand alone at times. And so we need to be very cautious about that and how we respond to that person and not just write them off as, you know, um, wanting to do their own thing or just be different or whatever. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I was thinking too how, you know, if we're using a, a democracy in the church and we got some kind of a majority of rules, then those um, minority viewpoints are never going to be heard. Like the, the prophet will never be heard if we go by majority rules. And so I think we need to be careful not to ostracize uh, minority viewpoints and uh, rather just like uh, maybe, maybe seek out um, the viewpoints of the minority and, and see if there's might be something there that we're not taking heed to. And if that had happened in this case, if the people, the majority had said, you know, we pretty much all agree here that we're not going in. But you know what? There are two people here that uh, have a different viewpoint. Maybe we ought to just um, hear them out. You know, maybe that could have um, had some effect. Some okay. thoughts. Go ahead, Leo. Uh, some thoughts I had, uh, Glenn. Uh, here, here to four people had been led to the wilderness by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And just, you know, looking at the map, there's nothing logical about the direction that they left Egypt and went down south through and up because they, they were, Moses himself wasn't even leading the people. He was following, he was leading the people as the cloud and the of fire and the cloud of uh, pillar of fire. Um, the cloud and the fire was leading him. And so the direction heretofore was all still of the Lord until they got to the point of Kadesh Barnea. So my question is, did 
did the cloud of fire uh, no longer give them direction when they got to Kadesh Berea? Was it a was it a testing point of why wasn't the cloud giving them direction at that point? Is one of my questions. And the other thing I had to think the, the comparison and the ratio of two people out of millions actually enter the Canaan land. Uh, is a is a stern lesson for us, but at the same time, the the Old Testament is very silent about the eternal reward aspect of the condition of his people. And uh, I like to think personally, because the scriptures are silent on this, that this disciplinary action in the wilderness actually resulted in men having faith, just like Abraham, uh, Moses himself received a disciplinary action of not being able to go into Canaan. But I don't, from an eternal reward standpoint, I believe I, I expect to see him in the, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I, I also like to think that millions of other men who went, who died in the wilderness and through this chastisement and in hard, difficult times, also received eternal reward, even though they didn't go into the Canaan land. So I hesitate to narrow this down to just two out of millions, because that is just a temporal il illustration of what took place there. I like to think that the disciplinary chastisement uh, action actually produced more sons of faith than actually went into Canaan land. Yeah, thank you for that. That's uh, very interesting. I don't know that I had given that thought, but yeah, in other words, maybe um, maybe what happened here could have been instructive to millions, and uh, many of them could have amended their ways, even though they were prohibited from entering. Yeah, appreciate that. Okay, um, like to look at another question here. Um, two questions and taking these together. So um, why did the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, see a land of opportunity while 10 others saw themselves as grasshoppers? And then uh, right along with that, uh, what can we learn from Joshua's words in Numbers 4-9? Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So clearly um, on question four, uh, Joshua had a different perspective from the others. And that's what question three is asking about. Uh, why, why was there this uh, different perspective? It's like they were all looking at the same evidence and just interpreting it differently. When Joshua looked at the evidence, he said, hey, this is our land. Like uh, this is... You know, their protection is departed from them. And the others said, wow, they're giants. Any thoughts on that? So you could call it a, so perspective makes a huge difference, like physically. Like, I don't know how many of you remember when you were a little child and you have, you were at a place or something and have memories of something that's just like really huge. And you go there years later and you're like, it's just, it really shrunk. What happened? And so like when you're down looking up, someone looks really big. But if you're looking with a bird's eye view or a view from above, it changes, it changes a lot of things. And I think, you know, we have the 10 spies. They said we were like grasshoppers in their sight. And they're thinking about, they're looking at things from their perspective. And then Joshua and Caleb are talking about how God has God is preparing the way before us, and and so they're looking at it's it's just kind of a change of a viewpoint, a diff, totally different viewpoint. I think that that just makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good illustration there. doesn't make a very strong case for eyewitness accounts. <laughs> so <laughs> all, all 12 of them were eyewitnesses, but it's like they had the same evidence, right? 
they just interpreted the evidence differently. Um, I think it's interesting what, what Joshua said. Uh, he said their protection has departed from them and the Lord is with us. And uh, I think sometimes that we get this um, exaggerated view about how powerful and formidable the, the devil is. When in fact, um, if we're with God, uh, we have nothing to fear. Like um, the, the statement there that their protection has departed from them, the Lord is with us, is something that I think we can take um, as a, a promise for ourselves as well, if in fact we be in that place. And um, so, yeah, I think just to, to view the world that way, that um, God is going to be the victor. And um, if we're walking with God, there's, there's nothing to fear. Nothing can go wrong, really. I had to wonder, should they have maybe asked for a few testimonies from the uh, from the people, from the Canaanites? Because um, if you look at Joshua chapter 2, where um, the spies are again in Jericho, Rahab had a tremendous testimony of how afraid they were, how their heart melted. And if they still had that testimony, what would that have looked like 40 years earlier? Yeah, that's a uh, very interesting. Thank you for that. Another difference, I think, is maybe not necessarily in the observation, but the end goal. Obviously, Caleb and Joshua viewed the end goal and had, had a, a proper faith in God, and they, and they knew what God could do. They both, they all, both groups saw the same thing. They observed the giants. They observed these. Um, huge uh, uh, walls or, or things that they had to cross before they could um, drive out the enemy, but they had an end goal. Amen. I also think it's something to do with um, their view of God. The 10 essentially thought that, that God was going to leave them um, you know, leave them perish and be destroyed by the giants. And Joshua and Caleb, they saw God as a good and generous God that was going to continue to care for them. And, and Joshua says, you know, if, if God finds us, um, delights in us, he's going to bring us into this land that is flowing with milk and honey. Because this is the kind of God I'm interpreting here because, you know, this is the kind of God he is, a God that cares. Is a generous and, and good guy. So it has something to do with the basic view of God. No. I appreciate that. As, as I look at this, I, what I'm seeing is the difference between reaction and response. Um, I was listening to a man discuss some, some of the current events and so forth yesterday, and he brought up this that... Um, as things happen, we see things happening around us. We can react, which is simply responding to emotional triggers that trigger reactions in us. But a response is rather pausing, looking inward, looking upward, and choosing how we're going to respond, um, consciously making a decision based on faith about how we're going to look at this situation. So that's kind of the way I see this. And as we choose to look to God rather than simply reacting to the emotional triggers that hit us, um, it makes a huge difference in how we'll face these situations. Ben, thank you for sharing that. I have an observation and a confession. Number one, the observation. <clears throat> uh, in Scripture, I have a tendency to grab it, gravitate toward the physical and concrete, and one of those elements in this story is the bunch of grapes. It took uh, uh, two people to haul them out on a pole, 
Now, if we think of this in terms of proportion, we would be talking about grapes maybe the size of tennis balls. And that's just an interesting thing to, uh, to reflect on. Um, that the image of the, uh, the, the, those grapes on the poles is actually uh, part of the uh, logo of the Israel, Israeli tourism department today. And my wife has a, uh, a, little, a little plate or, uh, that has that image on it. Uh, so regarding reconnaissance of the Holy Land, the Promised Land, uh, there's a picture that that was brought back to the uh, to to the people uh, by the witnesses. If 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 the grapes are that big, uh, how how fruitful is this land? <laughs> that's that's the the uh, observation and the confection is. Uh, since my wife passed away uh, in January of last year. Uh, uh, my my situation is is changed a lot. And I won't go into details, but man, I find myself channeling those murmuring Israelites uh, in in uh, gloomy despair, and uh, so I realize that uh, I made of I made of about the same stuff as they were. I'm not superior. And I have to chasten myself and encourage myself and seek encouragement from other places to uh, not succumb to despair. Yes, thank you for that. All right, so we're going to move on. Uh, we were talking about this. Um, yeah, I guess the, the negative aspects, the, the grasshopper syndrome, if you will. Uh, we're going to move on towards inheriting the promised land. So there's uh, these two characters, Joshua and Caleb, and I'd like to just uh, spend a little, little bit of time talking about each one of them. So first of all, Joshua, um, interestingly, his name was changed from Hoshea to Joshua. And as many of you may know, Joshua means salvation or he shall save. Joshua is the same name as Yeshua or Jesus. So that's uh, very interesting that um, Joshua there, I, I believe, being a, being a type of, of Jesus. So Moses was uh, a symbol of the law and is also notable, I believe, that he was only able to bring the people so far in their deliverance from Egypt. He was able to look ahead, uh, gaze ahead into the promised land, but he was unable to bring the people across the finish line into the promised land. And then who was it? It was Joshua, Jesus, who was able to carry the people into the promised land. So I think there's an amazing parallel there. And then in Joshua chapter 1, we have a, a famous um, section there of Joshua's words. I'm going to read only a very short portion of that, and it is thus. No man shall be able to oppose you all the days of your life. And as I was with Moses, thus I will also be with you. I will not forsake you, nor disregard you. Be strong and courageous, for you will divide this land which I swore to your fathers to give them. Be strong, therefore, and courageous to guard yourself and to do as Moses, my servant, commanded you. Then you will not turn away from them to the right nor to the left. In this way you will have understanding in whatever you do. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, and you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may have understanding to do all the things written therein. Then you will be, then you will both prosper, make your ways prosperous, and have understanding. Behold, I have commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be cowardly or fearful, for the Lord your God is with you in all things, wherever you go. I think those are amazing words, and I just uh, appreciate Joshua for that. And then also um, Caleb, um, I think he was also true to his name. Caleb means faithful or wholehearted, bold, brave. And um, there's a, a verse in Numbers 14. We had actually skipped over this earlier, but we have this word from God. Says, now my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went 
and his seed shall inherit it. So it was um, about 40, actually 45 years later, when we come to Joshua 14, the land was inherited. Uh, the tribes now were in the promised land and uh, they're being directed to their respective territories. However, uh, Caleb was promised an inheritance of his own as a reward for his courage. So there's the 12 tribes, they all go to their own place, but uh, Caleb and Joshua now in the promised land, they met and I'm going to um, read a little section about that. So this is taken from Joshua chapter 14, uh, verse six. And uh, they're now in the promised land. This is uh, 45 years later. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, said to him, so this is uh, Caleb speaking to Joshua, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning myself and you in Kadesh Barnea. That's at the time of the spying incident. For I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of God, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land and I brought back word to him as he wished. But my brothers who went up with me turned aside the heart of the people while I continued to follow the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, The land on which you set foot shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever. Because you continued to follow the Lord your God. Uh, sorry, I slide wasn't following there. Uh, verse 10. Now the Lord has sustained me, as he said, these 45 years since the Lord spoke this word to Moses, and Israel wandered in the desert, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am as strong today as when Moses sent me, as strong now to go out and come in for war. Now therefore I ask for this mountain, verse uh, 12, now therefore I ask you for this mountain, or as the King James says, give me this mountain. As the Lord said in that day, since you heard the word in that day, for now the Anakim are there with large and fortified cities. Therefore, if the Lord is with me, I will utterly destroy them as the Lord said to me. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the son of Kenaz, as an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, to this day, because he followed the command of the Lord God of Israel. But the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, the, the capital of, An of the Anakim. Then the land rested from war. So just the note that this mountain, Hebron, became the inheritance of Caleb. And this was not a nice, green, pleasant meadow. In fact, it was still inhabited by giants. And uh, Caleb... He has as much uh, strength and courage as he did 45 years earlier. And he's like, give me this mountain. And Caleb wasn't saying, give it to me as my due reward. Instead, he's an 85-year-old man. And he's saying, give me the toughest land that you've got, a mountain that's full of giants, because I learned what God can do. So I, I was really, uh, really blessed by that. And um, yeah, so that's the conclusion of my thoughts. Um, anyone have anything to to share yet? This may not uh, be something that uh, people of Anabaptist background can relate to. Uh, and I didn't grow up that way. So I have lots of worldly cultural influences. One of the things that I like to do from time to time is imagine who I would cast in the movies as, as a certain character. And when it comes to Joshua or Caleb, uh, I can't help but think of Jimmy Cagney. Thank you, Dan. I, I wonder how much of Caleb and, and Joshua, um, how much their spirit was, was just sacrificial. Like God is so amazing. I'm willing to sacrifice my life. If it means my death for this cause, it means my death. And I, th I just think that that, that spirit um, in our day, you know, you just kill my body. It's all you, it's all you can do. Um, and, and also just the, you know, Seth, Seth Godin has, has a quote. He says it this way. He says, 
the easiest thing is to is to uh, react in a situation. The second easiest thing is to respond. But he said the third thing is the hardest, and that is to initiate. And 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 you see these men just initiating, like let's go do this. Look at God, and uh, may we be that kind of people in our day that are just willing to 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 move past, you know, all the noise, and and have that spirit of, of sacrifice. Um, another person has said he said looking at the early Anabaptists, he said what scares me so much is their sacrificial attitude. You can kill me, that's okay. I'm willing. I'm I'm following Jesus. He's our hero. He's our king, and I'm going to obey him no matter what. And um, so initiation, um, sacrificial spirit. Uh, I think we just see in, in these men just willing to go serve wherever. May God, may God help us. Thank you for sharing this morning, Glenn. Thank you for that. The unfortunate part that most people have is they're afraid to risk what they have right now. I look at death as a reward, and I think there's a plenty of people. If you're looking at Merle Weaver, he's sending young people over into the hot spots, and there are many people willing, sometimes a little reckless, <laughs> and sometimes not, but we're willing to participate. The unfortunate part, there's people that think too much they want to do, and they're not thinking about how to do it. I don't know. I'm, I've been very uh, loud about that for a long time. Um, let me get out of this. Glenn, you did a great job. Thank you very much, brother. Thank you for being on. If there's uh, nobody else, we'll turn it back to Sam. Yeah, thanks a lot, Glenn, um, for allowing the spirit to move through that discussion. I enjoyed that thoroughly. I'm greatly challenged to have heart and courage, but also um, there's something about that story and Moses in his relationship to the people and to the difficulties that he went through. Moses just, he stands out to me as, as an incredible person. Um, yeah, it's, it's humbling to, to see the hand of God work in these people live, people's lives like this because they were willing to um, follow him. But it's also challenging to me to think about how many times that I complain about the direction that I'm going. And a lot of times it's probably because of the decisions I made. And um, so, yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that. I think we've all been greatly inspired. We're going to close in prayer, but before we do that, um, I have an announcement to make for next weekend. For February the 13th, we have Dean Taylor is going to be joining us for both a part one and a part two. Part one at six again in the morning and part two at three o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern time. And he's going to be talking about Christians in politics, a challenge from history. Um, knowing or I don't know Dean, but in hearing his uh, talking about Anabaptist history and things like that, it's, I can, I know already that it's going to be an incredible session. Um, and I don't want to miss either one of those. So be looking forward to it. Pray for brother Dean. If you think about him in regards to that and yeah, hopefully we can see you all next weekend at six in the morning for the part one and three in the afternoon. That's February the 13th. And Dean Taylor will be joining us for that. And I think with that, we will pray. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the words that we heard this morning. We thank you for the inspiration that we heard in regards to your children a long time ago. And what is amazing to me is that even through the passage of time, there's so many things to be learned, uh, so many things to be gleaned from these stories of men of faith and also warnings from people that didn't take you at your word or didn't look to you for guidance. May that not be the case for each one of us. May we stop and think every time we're faced with a decision, what would you have us do, Lord? And look up first. 
and then initiate move ahead, step out step out in faith i think about um our responsibility to just move ahead with faith with the information that we have but trust that you will bring the increase you will lead us be with each one that was here this morning may your, their hearts have been touched by the um by the speaking of your word go with us today we pray this in jesus name amen thank you all for being on and god bless you as you go out and work in your corner of the kingdom today as iron sharpens iron so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend